may be seated, everyone. Thank you, worship team. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. The book of Galatians, it's a New Testament book, one of Paul's letters, um, Galatians chapter, chapter 3. This past week, I was thinking about giving a message on the parables of Jesus, and I was so burdened by what I was seeing and reading and on the news and on social media that I thought it would be really important to offer some words on uh, racial hostility and racial healing and justice and reconciliation in our churches and in our world, uh, because the event in Charlottesville has revealed something about our country and about our churches, namely that we often don't think Christianly when we talk about important divisive matters of race and such. It's very easy to take the talking points of Sean Hannity and Fox News and Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and Jake Tapper and CNN, and we use those people as our people, the talking points, to have a conversation about race. And we forget about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Can I get a witness here? Okay. And so, and so how do we think Christianly? What's an appropriate theological and Christian response to the hostility we see in our world? That's what I want to talk about today. And from the onset, I want to let you know it's going to be a lot. I'm giving you a lot of stuff. We're going to be unpacking this in you know, weeks and months to come, but I'm giving you a, a large theological vision as well as some really next steps, practical next steps for us to navigate through the complexity of race. And at New Life Fellowship Church, we have a rule of life. When you walk in on the left-hand side, we see a rule of life. And one of the components of our rule of life is that we live in truth, asking the hard questions and having the hard conversations. And so uh, that's what uh, I, I hope I could uh, lead us in that today. And so listen, the reality is in this room and for those watching online, that there's a great spectrum of interest in matters as it pertains to race. We are all in different places and God wants to meet you wherever you're at. Uh, some of you have met, never thought about race very deeply. Uh, some of you say, I have friends of all kinds of colors, that race is not really an issue for me. Uh, some of you say, can we put the past behind us and just get over it and stop talking about it? Uh, perhaps you've wrestled with issues of race and hostility and you're hurting and you're angry and you want to see change. Maybe you've recently immigrated to this country and you say, eh, this has nothing to do with me. Uh, and so you're indifferent to the realities of race. And so wherever you are on the spectrum, this message is for all all of us, for teachers and lawyers and police officers and high school students, and of course, every single Christian in this room. And so I'm going to be reading out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Uh, let's read it together. Let's, 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 let's confess this scripture together out loud. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let that absorb your soul today. Let that permeate and penetrate your mind today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we believe that your spirit breaks down barriers. And Lord, I ask that you would break down barriers within us, among us. Lord, would you uh, set us free? 
by your name. And so we offer this time. Give us, Lord, revelation. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive every good gift you have for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Now, the past couple of weeks, uh, stemming from uh, the incident in Charlottesville, has brought race uh, again to the surface of public conversation. And in these moments, it's very easy to do one of two things. We either hide or we fight. We hide or we fight. Many people hide because uh, you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You feel overwhelmed by the realities of racial hostility in the world. And so you think, uh, I need to hide because I don't know what to say. For other of us in this room or watching online, you fight because you're angry about it. You're tense about it. You have a history. Uh, you, you feel some, you have some skin of the game, as it were. And so you respond with this kind of fighting mentality. And so whether it is hiding or fighting, we come to the table with our our own emotional responses and our own ways of approaching conversations of these matters. And I'm concerned that when we talk about issues such as race, I'm concerned that when we talk about issues such as sexuality, I'm concerned that when we talk about uh, uh, divisive, explosive, volatile issues, that we don't think Christianly and theologically and biblically about what God has to say to us to navigate through the complexity of everything we see here. And so I I want to offer a message primarily to our church, the New Life Fellowship Church, to every person represented here, to the 75 nations that are represented in our church. We exist to bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers for Christ. And I want to begin with this profound statement that the cross of Christ is not just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down walls that separate us. I can begin with that. Typically, when we think about the cross, the cross, the diagram we see is is there's sinners on one side and a holy God on the other side, and the cross is what gets us over that chasm to get to God. And that's a helpful illustration, but it's limited because the cross is not just a bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer that breaks down walls that separate us. And the cross of Jesus is powerful enough to tear down walls of racial hostility. And he begins in local communities like ours. It begins in our own personal lives. It begins in our face-to-face conversations. It begins in our interactions on social media. It begins with you and me. And until we fundamentally see that the gospel is about the creation of a new people from different backgrounds who who have pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ, we're going to have a hard time moving forward. And so I want to offer a vision, a theological vision out of this passage in Galatians 3 and offer some practical steps forward. Now, that passage that we just read together uh, is a portion from a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Galatia. And what I love about the Bible is this. From the beginning of the church, from the inception of the church, Every local church has had issues. There's never existed a church in the past 2,000 years that didn't have issues. And so just because a church has issues doesn't mean God is not present. God is often present because the church has issues. And so in Galatians, there's a lot of issues that Paul is trying to navigate. And the passage I read is a wonderful parallel to much of the hostility we see in our world. 
When we get to chapter 3, Paul is trying to settle some theological matters. The Galatian church believed that in order to, uh, for someone to be a follower of Jesus, they had to trust in Jesus, but it wasn't enough. The Jewish Christians said, not only do you have to trust in Jesus, you have to become Jewish just like us. And so they put pressure on the Gentile Christians to observe the law. They put pressure on the Gentile Christians to be circumcised. They put pressure on the Gentile Christians to eat according to the law. They put pressure on the Gentile Christians to observe, observe particular holy days. In short, they wanted the Gentiles to be assimilated. In Galatians, to keep the law wasn't about just doing good deeds. It was also about, perhaps primarily, about making Gentiles Jewish. And so to keep the law said, yeah, trust in Jesus, but become Jewish like us. And so in the mind of Jewish Christians, in the, in the time when Paul was writing, there was a two-tiered hierarchy. Jews were up here, Jewish Christians up here, and everybody else was down here. Jewish Christians were the ones who were chosen. Everyone else was chosen, but after the fact. And so they have a two-tiered hierarchy, a two-tiered spirituality, a two-tiered ecclesiology, a two-tiered way of seeing church, Jewish Christians up here, and everyone else was down here. And so even after they trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they still maintained a sense of their own superiority. They still maintained a sense of their own Jewish supremacy. And so Paul writes to a church that is steeped in a kind of ethnic supremacy, and this sense of superiority strained relationships in the church. And I find it fascinating that the tensions persisted after they came to Jesus. The fact is, you can be in Christ and not have the life of Christ fully formed in you. You could be in Christ and not have the life of Christ fully formed in you. Some of the worst racism historically has come in the name of Jesus. And so this passage is helpful for us because it, it serves as a mirror to see the ethnic and racial hostility in Paul's time, and it serves as a mirror to show the ethnic and racial hostility in our time. And one thing is certain, it is this, that there's deep racial tensions in our country. Now, when we talk about race and racism and racial inequality and racial hostility, it's important to speak with nuance because this is a very complex conversation. And so I want to offer us not just theology, I want to offer us a bit of sociological analysis as well because we can't be simplistic as we think about massive issues such as race and racial hostility. And when we talk about race, we have to think of it at least on two levels, on a kind of corporate level and a kind of individual level, a macro level and a micro level, an institutional level and an individual level. And unless we're having that level of conversation, we're going to be missing each other in the dialogue. And so to talk about racial inequality and racial hostility, we must talk about it from two perspectives. The first perspective we must talk about it is from the perspective of institutional racism. Institutional racism is about the way that power is used or misused to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others. And let's stop here for a second. 
Systemic institutional racism is about how society is ordered on every level based on the disproportionate amount of power that has been historically taken as a given. When the dominant culture occupies positions of decision-making power, whether politically or educationally or economically, there's going to be many blind spots and society will be ordered in a particular way. And so it's helpful to think about the many different layers of racism, institutional, that we see in our world. And I've adapted a helpful diagram to help us think through this, to help us understand the nuances of this. Because when it comes to institutional racism and systemic racism, there is kind of an unacceptable social way of seeing it. And then there's this kind of implicit, acceptable social way of seeing it. And until we see the multiple layers, we're not going to be able to move forward. When we think about uh, uh, racism, it's helpful to look at it in an iceberg. And you guys are familiar with the iceberg. When it comes to that which is overt racism, that which is socially unacceptable, we think about the KKK, we think about swastikas, we think about saying the N-word, we think about uh, lynching, we think about hate crimes, we think about racial slurs. That's one level of socially unacceptable racism. And often we say, I, you don't see me uh, saying those things on the top of the level. Therefore, we say we are not complicit in any kind of form of racism in our world. We don't benefit or we don't perpetuate it because we're not doing any of that stuff on the top. But when we talk about racism and institutional racism, you have to look at the many layers of it. That when you look at covert racism, this sense of socially acceptable racism, whether it's mass incarceration or racial profiling or police brutality or presumption of guilt or implicit bias or redlining or housing discrimination or hiring discrimination based on a person's last name. You see someone's last name on a job application or you see a doctor with a particular last name and you say, surely they don't speak English well. Or the racist jokes that, that are beneath the surface, but are still impacting the way that life is ordered. And so you cannot talk about institution, racism as a whole without talking about institutional racism. And in this country, historically, those who have experienced and, and been the victims of institutional racism disproportionately have become our people of color. It was Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, where she talks about the disproportionate amount of people in mass, who have been mass incarcerated, particularly black men. When you look at police brutality in this country, for all the good work that many police officers do, and we have many wonderful police officers in our congregation right here, there's a disproportionate uh, amount of people who are targeted. When we look at how institutional racism is used, where particular resources are used in one neighborhood but, and not used in another neighborhood, you cannot help but think that there's a larger systemic institutional reality. And to think this doesn't exist is to be naive. And so the gospel speaks not just to our souls, but to our systems. The gospel speaks not just to individuals, but to institutions. And unless we see that the gospel is not just primarily a message that when you die, you go to heaven. The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Jesus Christ is Lord, he is reordering the world through his kingdom to, 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 to make upside down the values of this world system. 
And so when we talk about racism, we have to think on the large picture institutional racism, but we also have to think on an individual level that is individual racial prejudice. And we have to have the conversation simultaneously. We have to hold one in one hand and hold one in the other hand because it's not just institutional racism that's an issue. That has targeted many people of color particularly, but when it comes to individual racial prejudice, disinfects everyone. Everyone has a kind of individual racial prejudice. We've all been socialized in a particular way to see people a certain way. We all have our racial prejudice. Institutional racism is how power is used. Individual racial prejudice is how we negatively perceive others. And many of us grew up in families and in cultures to see people who look different than us in one way or another. Man, we show prejudice to people who even look like us. If we show prejudice to people who look like us, Let me use a good biblical phrase. How much more are we going to show prejudice to people who don't look like us? Man, listen, and growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, in the family I was in, we we, Puerto Ricans, to, to be called a Dominican. Or Dominican to be called a poor, that's fine. We look just alike. You couldn't tell us apart in the crowd. But you call me, what you said about me? And then my Dominican, you call me a what? What you said about me? And we look alike. Individual. Now, if we have perspectives of people who look like us, come on, let's get real here. How much more are we going to have a particular prejudice against people we've never even interacted with? And so we have to talk about individual racial prejudice. Growing up, I I had individual racial prejudice against white people. Why? Because I didn't really grow up with white people. And the only white person I encountered, you were one of three things. You were uh, a drug dealer, a a drug, looking for drugs. You were a cop or you were lost. It was like, brother, you are lost. (laughs) You missed your stop. You, you, were t- you, you, you took the local. You were supposed to take the express. Let me swipe you back in in the name of Jesus before you get hurt. And so in East New York, you were a cop. <laughs> you were looking for drugs or you were lost. And so let me swipe you. Thank God I had extra money on my card for you. And so growing up, I had my own sense of individual racial prejudice. And we all, listen, institutional racism is how power is used and some benefit more than others. Individual racial prejudice is something that all of us are infected with and we must be mindful about it. And so whether we're talking about institutional racism or whether we're talking about individual racial prejudice, the word of God to us through Paul in this passage is to intentionally reject a sense of superiority and a sense of inferiority, rejecting in the name of Jesus a sense of superiority and inferiority. The gospel shapes us to be aware and resist of the temptation to think you're better than someone or think that you are inferior to someone. And so the gospel is about treating others as equals, both 
privately and publicly in the way that society is ordered because we are equal. And so Paul, to get to this, Paul says, how do, we, how do we navigate this? How do we set aside our superiority? How do we set aside our inferiority? Paul says it's one word. The word is baptism. He says, you've been baptized into Christ. And if you've been baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul says, there is a new identity. Those who belong to Jesus have a new identity, a new fundamental identity. And that identity is not based on the ordering of society. The identity is based on the cross of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so he says, you've been baptized into Christ that we no longer hold the values and the ordering of the world system because we belong to a different kind of system called the kingdom of God. And so this verse here, he says, you've been baptized into Christ. And then in verse 28, he says, essentially, therefore, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. There's neither uh, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And this verse there, very important, is not about dissolving differences. That verse there is not about saying it's irrelevant. It's not about dissolving differences at all. Uh, many people use verses like this to say that they're colorblind. I'm just trying, they say, I'm, I'm colorblind. I hear people say, there's no such thing as like a black church or a white church or an Asian church or a Latino church. And they use this verse to justify this. But this verse is not about being colorblind. For many people, colorblindness is a virtue. It's seen as something to be applauded and celebrated. Sometimes I hear people say, listen, I don't see color. I see people. And that's nice. <laughs> but you know who sees color? Jesus sees color. At the end of human history, when we're all gathered at the throne of God, in the book of Revelation, it says, I saw a great multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered before the throne. And here, here, here it is. You bring your ethnicity into eternity. Ponder that for a moment. Who you are. And so get used to who you are. Because there's, you bring your ethnicity into eternity. Jesus is not colorblind, brothers and sisters. He sees, he has a multicolored bride. And he sees the, the gifts that every ethnicity and every culture brings into the kingdom of God. And so when Paul says we are one in Christ, he's not talking about ignoring differences. He's not talking about being colorblind. He's saying get over a sense of superiority. And get over a sense of inferiority. Now, know what Paul does. Paul joins people who historically have been uh, uh, people who have been experienced uh, uneven power. He joins people who have historically been uneven in terms of power. And he joins them together in Jesus through baptism. Look what Paul does. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Jews thought... They were better than Gentiles. He says there's never neither slave nor free. Free people thought they were better than slaves. There's neither male nor female. Men thought they were better than women. Paul says, if you're going to be baptized and come into this community, you have to let go of the way that society is ordered and know 
That there's no room for superiority, no room for supremacy, and no room for inferiority in the kingdom of God. He joins them together. And Paul says, you might have differences in power out there, but when you come to Jesus, there is no differences in power in here. There's no one better and there's no one less than. And so, listen, you, you can't talk about reconciliation until we see how the cross humbles those who live with the illusion of racial, ethnic, class, and gender superiority and exalts those who live with the burden of racial, ethnic, class, and gender inferiority. You can't talk about reconciliation until you see how the cross balances them together. In a society that says men are better, in a society that says white people are better, in a society that says rich people are better, in the kingdom of God, there are no such categories. And all of those categories need to be dismissed in the name of Jesus. Why? Because there's no superiority in the kingdom of God. The only supremacy is Jesus' supremacy. He is the supreme one. And so Paul says, in Christ, no one's better because we've all been baptized, baptized together as one. And so we need to establish it as a theological core, first and foremost. Now, the cross humbles those who live with the illusion of racial, ethnic, class, and gender superiority and exalts those who live under the burden of racial, ethnic, class, and gender inferiority. And by establishing this as the baseline, how do we move forward? And so I want to offer some very practical things here. And over the next couple of months, we'll be unpacking these here and there. And I want to tell you, this is a lot. This is going to be a lot. So uh, listen to the sermon again and take some notes here. But I want to give you kind of a diagnosis. How do we have cultivate a spirituality to engage issues of racial hostility. How do we do it? And there's nine things I want to share with you. Just nine. I had 15. I brought it down to nine. <laughs> and so if we're going to move forward in the conversation of racial inequality, racial justice, racial reconciliation, racial wholeness, first of all, there must be a deep commitment to listening even when it's hard. If we don't do this, let's not even think about the other eight. If we don't start here, let's not even think about anything else. There must be a deep commitment to listening even when it's hard. And so I like to say when it comes to matters of race, uh, our level of offendability often reveals the level of our maturity. Some people say 30 seconds in the conversation, I'm offended, I'm out of here. The level of our offendability often reveals the level of our maturity. And one of the greatest gifts we offer one another is our presence, is listening. Reconciliation requires us to stay present even when it's hard. Now, let's face it. The kind of work, interior work that's required to do this kind of work and reconciliation and all that there, very few people are willing to do. Because it requires you to identify your triggers. It requires you to identify your emotional allergies. It requires you to identify the the, the stories and the values that you've heard from time to time. 
And so, and so reconciliation, for it to happen, there must be a mutual listening to one another. A mutual listening to one another. But, but, but let's not be mistaken. While there must be mutual listening to one another, the ones who need to listen first and more often are those who have enjoyed the privileges of power. Those who have enjoyed the privileges of power need to listen first and more often. Now, in this country, that means that the rich need to listen first and more often to the poor. That men need to listen first and more often to women. Can I get an amen there? I know I see you ladies here. (laughs) That in our country, white people need to listen first and more often to people of color. Those who have enjoyed social privilege and power are to listen first and more often. Now, this doesn't mean that the poor are not to listen to the rich. It doesn't mean that uh, women aren't to listen to men. It doesn't mean that people of color aren't to listen to uh, white folks. But what it means is if we're going to follow in the Jesus way, Jesus demonstrates this for us by self-emptying himself called a kenosis in the book of Philip. He empties himself and enters into our space here. It's a very cross, uh, uh, Jesus cross way of living to empty yourself of your privileges to listen. It was Douglas Steer who said to listen to another soul may be almost the greatest service that any human being ever performs for another. And to be present with one another and listening, we can't move forward until this happens. Now, I want to move on here. There must be a deep commitment to listening, and this is hard. This is hard. This is In a social media world, this is very hard. This is why we need to cultivate a deep spirituality for this. But let me move on here. We also need an honest examination of the history of racial inequality in our country. You can't understand the current experience of racial hostility without also facing the history of racial oppression experienced first by the Native American community. Slavery of African-American people. Racial discrimination that's taken place throughout the country's history. Jim Crow laws. We just can't get over it. Now, at New Life, we build a theology around this. We call this the genogram. At New Life, we talk about going back to go forward. That a good spirituality is not about ignoring the past. Many people use verses to ignore the past personally. We say things like, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest past, the newest come. Amen. I don't want to look at the past. Or we say, uh, we get real sophisticated. We say, remember Lot's wife, you know, and she looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. And uh, look, look what happens when you look back. You turn into a pillar of salt. And, and all, we use all kind of verses to justify not looking back. But every person in this room has been shaped. You have a history. They're positive legacies and they're negative legacies that you've inherited. And until we consistently look at the ways that we have been shaped, how can we move forward? Now, if that's true on an individual basis, how much more true is that on a national basis? That our country has a history. And and the history is not so far past. Within Some of us within this room, within the lifetime of people, we've seen a whole different world 
within the lifetime here. So it's not like we're talking about stuff that happened in the 1300s and the 1400s. We're talking the stuff that happened just a couple of decades ago or last week. And so the past is not really past. The past is very present. And until we have an honest examination of history in our country as it pertains to racial inequality, we cannot really go forward. We also need to cultivate language of grief and lament. How can we move forward if we refuse to grieve and lament with one another? Now, one of the obstacles to any kind of reconciliation, whether personally or across uh, people groups, is the lack of empathy, of actually empathizing with someone. I see it uh, from time to time in my marriage. Growing up, um, Rosie and I, we've been married for 11 years, and um, uh, whenever we have tensions in our marriage, uh, you know, maybe once every three years or so, uh, uh, we have these tensions, uh, I go into four modes of being, four modes of being. Whenever she's angry, whenever she's sad, I either, uh, I either fix her problem or, tr- or try to fix her problem. Honey, why don't you just do this? Option one, option two, option three. I mean, you got baby, we got this. Uh, I either uh, superimpose how I would respond to that. This is what I would do in that circumstance there. Or I would uh, minimize what she's feeling. Come on, baby, can't be that bad. It's not that bad. Or I just leave. I got to get out of here. It's just, I, I just leave. And so all four don't work, okay? I want to give, give some good marriage advice right now. Uh, I know we're talking about race, but let me just talk about it. It's, it's, it don't work. And so I see a therapist. I go see a therapist. And I say, listen, man, I don't know what to do. My wife gets angry, she gets sad, and I go into these four modes, and I just don't know what to do. And he said, listen, the next time your wife is angry, the next time your wife is sad, I want you to do something very simple. I got my notepad, go for it. He says, I want you to be angry with her. I want you to be sad with her. And I thought, ah, okay, you know, I just, I guess I'll try that. No, I don't think it's gonna work, I'll just try that there. A couple of days later, Rosie was angry about some situation, and, and I typically go into uh, uh, fix-it mode, or I typically go into superimposing how I would respond mode. I go into minimizing mode. Oh, get out. And I, oh, no. Oh, the therapist said to be angry with her, to be sad with her. And so she's talking about angry, and I just interrupt her mid-sentence. And she said, what? And I just kick something there, and... and <laughs> And Rosie says, honey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Calm down. You don't have to worry about it at all there. And, and, and how could the person say whatever? And, and at that moment, you know what my wife felt? She felt love. <laughs> love. Whenever she got sad, I, 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 I get sad with her. And, and this is not just marriage. This is now across the conversation of race. How are we going to have a, a reconciliation when one group of people refuses to be sad with another, to be angry with another? There's a legitimate reason why some people are angry. There's a legitimate reason why some people are sad. And until we say, tell me why you're angry and be angry with that person and be sad with, they're not looking to be fixed. They're looking to, to be, to, to, to have their feelings felt. 
And until we begin to practice grief and lament as a spiritual formation practice, we're not going really far. Moreover, if we're going to do this, we, we, we need a personal acceptance and appreciation of your own ethnic culture. How are you going to be reconciled to others if you're first not reconciled to yourself? How are you going to celebrate others and you don't celebrate who God made you? You are wonderfully and fearfully made. And until we begin to celebrate our own distinctiveness and our own ethnicity and our own culture and who God created us to be, how can we begin to step in in a legitimate way to others? And so we must begin to embrace every ethnicity brings a gift into the kingdom of God. And we need to begin to embrace, not apologize. There is no ideal hair type. There's no ideal skin complexion. There's no ideal uh, shape of your eyes. Everyone is a gift in the kingdom of God. And until we begin to be reconciled with ourselves, how in the world are we going to be reconciled with others? You're a gift. You're a gift. You're beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made. And so we must have a personal acceptance and appreciation of how God created us to be. We also need a deep spirituality of prayer. Why? Because we're not talking about just flesh and blood. We're talking about powers and principalities. We're talking about demonic powers that seek to separate us and divide. And so unless we have a spirituality of prayer, a deep spirituality of prayer, we're not going to be able to move forward. There's certain things we can do with our own strength, but there are other things that is not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And until we begin to cultivate a deep spirituality of prayer, how can we even enter into the conversation? Six, we need a growing awareness of our implicit racial bias. We all have implicit racial bias. We've all been, whether consciously or unconsciously, formed to make associations. You see someone walking down the block, you don't even know the person, but you have already a grid in your mind of who that person is and what that person might be. It's, in, and you don't, it's the air you breathe. It's the water you drink. You already made an association of that person by seeing them for three seconds. And until we begin to uh, examine our own uh, stories and the lies that we've heard about particular people, we are not going to move forward. Moving to Queens, Rosie and I moved to Queens and we moved to a, a different neighborhood outside of Brooklyn. And the first day we got there, uh, we were cleaning the apartment and Rosie had a, a broom in her hand. She was putting it in the car and a lady uh, chased her down and said, oh, you must be the cleaning lady. <laughs> and just not the best welcome into the neighborhood. Uh, and that lady made associations. She, she saw a Latina with a broom. That must mean this. And we make associations like that across the board. We see a black man wearing a particular outfit. He says, he must be this. We see a, 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 a man. We have our social categories for how men respond and or women. We, we have all this kind of implicit bias. And until we do the hard work of navigating, what have I been told about this kind of person? And do the contemplative work of what are the lies that I've been taught about this kind of person. We're not going to move forward. Seven. I tell you I have 15, so bear with me here. Seven. <laughs> How do we move forward? Well, there must be solidarity with those who are the victims of misused power. Jesus is always, always 
always on the side of those who are oppressed. Always on the side. And the church is to align with those who are oppressed. Solidarity. Listen, I, I, often you see what happens with white supremacy in, in Charlottesville and people, there's a lot of well-meaning people who denounce it. They go on to Twitter, they say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But, but to enter into racial wholeness is not about just denouncing something. It's about entering into solidarity with the victims of that kind of lie, that kind of ideology, that kind of thinking. And until, it's easy to say that's wrong and still not enter into solidarity with those who are the victims. And so we are to enter into solidarity with those who are the victims of misuse power. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that the church has an unconditional obligation to the victims of any ordering of society, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. That is, that if someone is a victim by some misordering of society, even if they're not a Christian, the Christian is to stand with that person. We don't just look after our own. We even look after those who are not in our community. Eight, there must be regular repentance, confession, and forgiveness. Because racial hostility is so deep in our culture, from time to time, we're going to hurt each other with our words. We're going to hurt each other with our deeds. And when this happens, our, the, the, church, the, the world knows nothing about repentance and confession and forgiveness. The world knows about hostility. This is why there, there are American ideals of racial reconciliation. I, I can't receive it. The only ideal I have is the kingdom of God. I, I cannot deal with any other uh, I, a category of reconciliation apart from what Jesus has said. Because every other category is going to let you down. Every other ideology is going to let you down. We must be rooted in the message of the kingdom of God. And that is about repentance and confession and forgiveness. And lastly, it's this, and then we'll sing together. Lastly is, if you don't remember anything, remember this, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Our hope is not in social progress or social regress. Our hope is not in people who are making laws. Our hope is not in people who are running the country. Our hope is in this. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I love how the missiologist Leslie Newbegin, someone asked him a question about some chaos that was happening in where he was living. And he said this about, they said, are you pessimistic? Are you optimistic about what's going to happen? And he said these words, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that is the Christian's response. Some say, I, I'm not an optimist about where the world is going with racial reconciliation. And some say, listen, I'm not a pest. I'm seeing some progress. Those are not the categories for the Christian. The category for the Christian is this. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is, our hopes are not in social institutions. Our hope is in the good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, because he's risen from the dead, his spirit is at work to draw people who are different from each other into one new family called the family of Jesus. And Jesus has a history of joining people together from different backgrounds, and I believe he can do the same today through the power of his spirit. I want to end by just highlighting two people who had many different backgrounds, and Jesus brought them together to be his disciples. There were a guy, one guy named Matthew and one guy named Simon. Matthew worked for the Roman Empire, and Simon wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus said... 
I'm inviting you guys to come together. If I can say it this way, like this. Matthew worked for the government. Simon hated the government. Matthew uh, was a tax collector. Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans. Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew uh, was wealthy. Simon was working class. Matthew made a living taking advantage of people like Simon. Simon made a living trying to kill people like Matthew. And Jesus said, you're together now. But in order to come together, it, was this, it, it wasn't no kumbaya kind of, I oh, was just together here. They had to die to some stuff. Matthew had to die to taking advantage of people like Simon. Simon had to die of a vision of revolution that was inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And so to come to Jesus is not just kumbaya, let's just sing some songs together. It's I have to die to some stuff in order for the new family of Jesus to be realized. And the reality is, you and I, every one of us in this room, if we're going to make some progress here, we have to die to something. And, um, and as I mentioned the weeks before, grace only comes to dead people. Grace only comes to dead people. Until we let ourselves be dead, the Spirit cannot make us alive. Let's pray together. Let's have the worship team come forward. What do you need to die to today? Maybe it's one of those nine things I said. How's the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? We're called to be the new family of Jesus, on mission for Jesus, demonstrating what the world is going to look like when Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns. We get to live in that reality today. And it begins with our own repentance and confession. Where's God calling you, speaking to you? What's he saying to you today? I want to end our time here with this prayer of confession. We all need to confess our sins. All of us, in one way, have been complicit in the racial hostility in our world. And we need to confess our sins together. Those watching online, you can join us in confessing this. But I want to invite you to look at the screen there. Let's all confess this prayer together, and then we'll sing together. Together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses. And grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's have our prayer team come to my left. We have the Lord's prayer to uh, the Lord's table to my right. Someone will be there to offer that. The cross isn't just a bridge to get us to God. It's a sledgehammer that tears down barriers that separate us. And the reality is all of us in this room, we have some work to do. Every single one of us, we have work to do. My hope is that in these nine areas, maybe there's just one area that you say, you know what, I, I need to, God is, he's called me by name in that particular area. And I just need to follow through now and listen to the Holy Spirit's voice to take my next step. And so I, I don't want you to see all, I got to do all nine, Pastor Rich, you know, no, take one. And after you feel like the Lord is shaping you and forming you, move on to the next one. This is a long, this is not a quick fix. This is not, we've been dealing with this for 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but we can do our own part together. And uh, Jesus is with us in the process. And so our prayer team is here. Maybe you came in here burdened. You came in here needing um, a move of God in your life, a touch from the Holy Spirit. Um, our prayer team will be here. And to my uh, right, we have Kelly and Shirley, who's going to offer uh, the bread and the cup. Um, we must be broken and bruised and poured out if we're going to work for reconciliation in the world. Wholeness comes through brokenness. And we model that when we take the bread and the cup together. And so I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven. Let me bless you all as we, um, I have great hope. I'm, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's where our hope is at. That's where our hope is at. And uh, one day he will finally and fully make all things new. And in the process, we do our part through the working of the Holy Spirit in and and through us. And so with your hands and your hearts, those of you watching online in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, tearing down barriers wherever you go. May you be a witness of the kingdom of God to God's reconciling and healing power. And so I bless you all today in the strong in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, everyone.